Amen. Hey, once again, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we are in our topic of world religions, cults, and the occult. We are in the fourth heading, and we're going to talk about Hinduism. Woohoo! How many guys have been waiting all week for this? Really? Okay, praise God. We'll talk later. I'll give you a piece of gum or something. But uh, I'm really excited about that. But uh, we've broken many records in the history here Wednesday night uh, as we get into new studies and stuff. And, and like, uh, for instance, we, uh, for those of you uh, uh, keeping track, I'm sure you all are, preachers can dream. Uh, uh, it took us five weeks just to go through the introduction. Remember those days? Right? And, uh, and, and there's certain studies that, man, we get into it and we only make it through two paragraphs. Right? Because there's just so much there. We take our time and want to become disciples. Well, I think we're going to break a new record tonight because, uh, I don't know, Tom, maybe it's just me, but um, guess how far we're probably going to get into our workbook tonight? Rhymes with zero. I got so much stuff, man. We just broke a record. I'm not even going to get into the workbook. I just got to get into an introduction. Now, what we're going to start off with is the basic premises. All right, Hinduism. What does Hindu mean? Right? What does that term come from? The word Hindu is derived from the Indo-Aryan Sanskrit word Sindhu, which means a large body of water. Okay? It was used of the name of the Indus River okay, over there in India, the Indus River, okay, and uh, referred to its tributaries. And so th- this was applied to the cultural people, the ethnic people, who gravitated towards that area in India near the Indus River. Indus Hindu uh, is where you kind of get that uh, name. And by the 16th century, the term began to refer to the residents of India who were not Turks or Muslims and began to take on the religious connotation of that. So that's where we get the term Hinduism is the people originally gravitating towards the Indus River and they began to develop the religion. Now, the religion, there's a couple of different theories on thought. Some say that Hinduism started about as uh, far back as 2000 B.C. Now, 2000 B.C. is when these people began to gravitate towards this area, the Indus River, become Hindu, Hinduism. Okay, and they probably had some ideas and stuff, but as we're going to see, they didn't start to formulate into a book form, which was called the Vedas, okay, which means knowledge, okay, and that wasn't until probably about 1500 B.C., so about 500 years later, they spawned this new religion. Now, I'm not going to be able to get into it tonight, unfortunately, so probably we'll get into that next week. This is important. We're starting to get into the older religions, not the newer ones, the cults and things of that, of that nature, older ones. And you'll hear people in the media try to subvert the Word of God and say, well, Hinduism is older then Christianity, therefore, it's more trustworthy. It came before, etc. Blah blah blah. Anybody hear some of those arguments? They're actually very popular today. Now, what we're going to see is, yeah, maybe the people moved over there at 2000 BC, okay, but they didn't really start getting their writings together until 1500 BC. If you look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, written by Moses, uh, the five, the Pentateuch, first five books, you're looking at about 1445. BC, so right about the same time frame. However, you have the book of Job, which most believe is the oldest book, and nobody really knows how old it is. It might be even older. But, okay, so you basically got the same time frame. But what we're going to see, not in this study, I can't get to it yet, Lord willing, because I want to take some time to dispel this lie. Just because it's older, it's better. But that's a myth. Christianity is the oldest, and it's out of Christianity that you have all these spurious religions because it's all wrapped around uh, the Genesis 11 account. Anybody remember what happened there? the Tower of Babel, and God confused the languages, and from there, they began to spread out from the earth, okay? This was after the event of the flood, and we're going to take a look at that event, too, because there's over 500 different flood legends around the world, and one of them, the Hindus, okay, also have in their literature a man they believe who was the beginning of their uh, race, and that was a guy named Manu, okay? And Manu, what's really interesting, and again, we'll get into some more of this later, is uh, they believe that this guy was told by uh, the deities, if you will, there's going to be a great flood, right? A great flood upon the world, and he and some folks gathered into a boat to survive the great catastrophe, okay? So what you're going to see, and I'm just going to give you a little teaser, what you're going to see is the uh, Christian account is the earliest, okay? And what you have after that, post-flood, post Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, then you begin to see, starting with Christianity, okay, in the flood, Genesis chapter 11, God confused the languages, then guess who went into the Indus River region? 
that group of people speaking that language. And we're also going to break it down, Lord willing, again, maybe next time, we're going to get into, and then when did the Babylonian Empire start and the Grecian Empire start, etc., etc. And you're going to see geographically, even from a secular sense, that it agrees with the biblical account. That's where it came from. Christianity came first. Then these spurious religions who, even though you got similarities with the flood, tells you it all came from a parent root. There's your parent root. But then they, of course, went off and got into what they developed, Hinduism, and then Babylonian with their things, and et cetera, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to eventually get into that as well. But that's how that starts. Now, Hinduism is today the third largest religion on the planet. Okay, this is a big one. Okay, today there's about 800 million estimated adherents, and the only two larger ones, now remember this, they say it's Christianity with 2 billion. Now, what do you say? Wait a second. Remember what we saw in the introduction? We broke it down and we took a look at their statistics. You said 2 billion people on the planet are Christians. Uh, no, because remember what they lumped into that figure? They lumped in Roman Catholicism. Oops, that's not Christianity. They also lumped in Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. Oh, that's not Christianity. So they lumped in Roman Catholicism and the cults, and so that is not even close to Christianity. Plus, remember what we saw that also agrees when you take a look at the true stats of how many Christians there are uh, and not, the truth with when you subtract all that, you end up with a few number, not a many. And what does Jesus say? Few only find most people, unfortunately, are going straight to hell. Because they're taking a false path, okay, as we took. But they say that, that uh, it's the third largest. This, the second largest, of course, we just finished up with that for seven weeks. And that, of course, was with Islam. They say about 1.3 billion here. But Hinduism is predominant in India. India, of course, is the major center. But we're going to see it's all over the world. Uh, and it was 82%. 82% of the population in India uh, approximately is uh, considered Hindu, okay? They're also in other countries, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Fiji, uh, Mauritius, uh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Suriname, Trinidad, and it actually is spread out all over the world now. We'll get into that a little bit tonight. How did that happen? How did it leap across the waters, okay? And basically right now, Hinduism is spread to 13% of the world. So it's all over the place. It's growing. I would almost want to put that even higher, okay? Because again, you're going to see that many people, even in the United States, are really good Hindus, but they don't, they don't know it and they won't admit it. And that's because they've been indoctrinated into this, but they've been told, oh, it's just for physical exercise. No, it's just a mind science. It's a stress relaxation technique. No, it's Hinduism. And then we're going to get into their verbiage, and a lot of their verbiage has even crept into our English language. And we don't even realize that, hey, this is Hinduism. Okay? But they say 13% of the world's population. Okay, uh, Part of it, too, is it's splintered off. Hinduism has different, they have estimated, I don't know who's the guy who's counting all this stuff, estimated 330 million different gods, okay? So as you can tell, it's like, well, this one, no, this, this one, no, you that one, or I'll do this one. So you got a little bit of things just all over the place, okay? Uh, and, we'll get it. and we're going to, Lord willing, eventually get into some of their different supposed gods and goddesses. Now, what is, that really, what is a god and a goddess in biblical terms? It's called a demon, okay? Because there is only one god, Jehovah God. In the Bible period. And what you're going to see, these false deities, i.e. demons, man, these are... Phew. A lot of this stuff most people don't realize. You keep pushing this so far, it's going to get extremely dark. Okay? And one of it we're, we're going to eventually get into is what's called uh, the tantric uh, part of Hinduism. And that is... I mean, it's all bad. It's all demonic. But this is like sickening, sick... I, I'm going to... I have to say that because I, I can't tell you now, but it's just... it's it's gross most people oh hinduism all you do is just do these exercises <laughs> because anytime you mess with demons guess what you're going to get hello been there done that okay and the further you go the darker it gets and people just treat this oh it's just innocent just good for exercise no it's not okay and again we'll get into that but they split off into major sections you got buddhism you got jainism and you got sikhism which is a combination of muslims uh islam and Hinduism kind of combined together. And, of course, the New Age movement. Now, they, inter they uh, estimate that right now there are over 1 million uh, adherents, not, not just Hindus, but adherents to Hindu in the United States. Okay? Over 1 million. I, I personally would probably put that higher because I think that even churches, believe it or not, uh, are teaching Hinduism. Right? We're going to talk about some things called a mantra. Mantra is a verse that you say over and over again uh, to a particular deity, which is, again, is a demon. 
right? You just repeat a phrase over and over again, and, and, and it helps you to get into an altered state of consciousness because we're going to see the ultimate goal is to try to escape reincarnation, right? And the law of karma, right? And things of that nature. So they have their different technique. It's a works-based salvation, but their version of salvation is just basically become nothing and join the universe of one, and, which is wonder why kids aren't motivated today. I want to become nothing. That's my whole goal in life, right? But that's, that's really what it is. And, and, but basically, I think a lot of people are into it more uh, because they don't realize uh, that a lot of things that they're teaching, even in the church, is, it's just flat-out Hinduism. Again, mantra. Um, I remember when I first got saved and uh, at a new age, and I'm in Bible college, and I'm you know, going to church world, I call it. Right? I figure as a Christian, you're supposed to go to church services, right? You're supposed to read the Bible, that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian, right? I go to church world and I go to this one more lively uh, place and get it familiarized, and, and I'm going, wait a second, what do you, what do you, you mean to tell me that if I have, quote, enough faith, then I can determine my own reality, I can make myself get a car or a whatever? Okay, now the Christian phrase for this is called the word of faith movement. We talked about that, right? Did you know that's flat out Hinduism? Hinduism, New Age? creative visualization, you repeat a mantra, right? This is why also in the word of faith movement that they'll say, hey, you better be careful of your words. Don't say you're getting sick, read. Don't even say it because you have the power. The force of faith is in your mouth. And if you keep speaking it, it's gonna become a, re- that's Hinduism. Oh, and I'm telling you, we're just getting started. When we get acquainted with what Hinduism, and that's what we're gonna do first, then we're gonna splinter off and see how it's impacted the church. But we're going to get into the core of Hinduism and what they believe. Then I think your eyes are going to start going, oh, no. It's not just false teaching. Trace the root. It's Hinduism slapped with Christianese and people being sold a bill of goods. Okay, Even some techniques to get into an altered state of consciousness that the Hindu does to try to escape reincarnation. It's being taught in churches today. And you are having a spiritual experience, but that doesn't mean it's the spirit of God. Most people don't know because they don't understand what is Hinduism and what does it teach. Let's continue on. Hinduism, again, does not have an original founder. There was no guy named Earl Hindu. <laughs> no, it just kind of worked together in the area. Okay, uh, its roots can, again, there's a kind of a debate. Say, some would say as far back as 2000 when they came to the Indus River Hinduism, right? Uh, or more of the 1500 when the Vedas uh, their spiritual books began to uh, manifest there, okay? It was uh, originally polytheistic. Poly meaning, of course, many. Thea, theistic, theos, God, many gods. 330 million, who's counting? Uh, and very ritualistic, right? And what you're going to find is man, man-made religion is always very ritualistic. Why? Because man, outside of Christ, okay, it's all about self, right? And you want to please self, and you want self wants to feel good about self, right? And there's no better way to feel good about self than doing religious things to think you can justify self's rotten behavior that you know you did, right? You look at pretty much every major religion, okay, outside of Christianity, and what do they do? You either acknowledge you are God, you can become God, you got to work your way to God. And there's all the, everybody has their own techniques. You got to stand up, sit down, burn this, do that, chant this, do this, what? And man feels good. It's like, ah, oh, I'm religious, and you justify your behavior. And they got their own set too, okay? Uh, ritualistic religion, various rituals performed. Uh, as time passed, the rituals became increasingly more complex, okay? And there became a need for a priestly class to perform these rituals. And again, you see this in other religions, okay? Roman Catholic Church, who do you have to go through? Got to go through the priest. Got to go through the pope. You got to listen to this higher cast of people who are better than you and I. Don't you even pick up that religious literature. Only we know the higher truth. Well, the same thing happened here with Hinduism. As we're going to see, eventually they broke off from that, okay? And they began to get it more individualized. Now, anybody can just get in the lotus position and, and do their thing and get into an altered state of consciousness. But they had a little priestly cast, and there's still elements of that in their culture uh, today. So during this time... The Vedas were written to instruct the priests on how to perform these rituals. Because man's, if you're going to work your way to whatever, you got to have your rituals. You can't just stand there. You got to do something, right? And so that's what he does. And that's what they do. Now, the earliest Hindu scriptures, again, they're called the Vedas. Vedas, as I already mentioned, means this word, where to put it? Knowledge, okay, is what that means. There's four Vedas, okay? They break it into, this is basically their version of scripture, Okay, called the Vedas. Okay, there's the Rig Veda, there's the Sama Veda, there's the Yajur Veda, and the Artharva Veda. Now, not to be confused with 
uh, Darth Aveda, because I knew you were thinking that. I knew Jess was. I know she was thinking that, right? And uh, that's, that's the Star Wars. Now, now, that does bring up an interesting point. I'm already ahead over there. Wait until we get to that. We're going to be in this for a while. But the next one, Buddhism. We're actually probably going to have a whole study just on Star Wars, right? Because George Lucas, most people don't know. He's very slick, all right? He's a big promoter of this, these teachings, and he wove it right into Star Wars to the point. And Chris has shared some of this stuff. All over the world, there are now creeping up Jedi churches, Okay, and this isn't a, this is, no, it's not, it's not even a game. It's not, these people are deadly serious. It's created, literally, spawned off again, another new religion on the planet. But it's nothing new. He's put these teachings into the movie, the concept, the good force, the bad force, the universal force, and you tap into it and all this stuff. We'll get there eventually, okay? So, uh, but not Darth Vader. So, which is supposed to be, I guess, Dutch for Dark Father or something. Ooh, I don't know. Anyway, so uh, each Veda then is divided into four parts, right? So you got four Vedas. Each Veda is divided up into four parts. Now, the first part is what's called the mantras. All right, you guys have heard that, right? And that's actually now woven into our English language, isn't it? It's a basic Hindu uh, term. Now, that ba- the mantras are the basic verses or the hymns sung during the rituals, Right? And, uh, and repeat, like uh, Hare Krishna, so we'll get into that as well. It's a, a spinoff. And uh, just repeating these mantras, these verses over and over. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, part of, that's part of their ritual. They call it the bhakti, uh, part of their ritual to help them to bust out of reincarnation because that's the ultimate goal. How do I get out of this endless cycle of karma and reincarnation, right? And, uh, and so they have their techniques of how you get out of there, right? And just repeat your mantra and whatever and things of that nature. Uh, then you have, that's the first part. Okay, remember, there's four Vedas, each one into four parts. First part, mantra. Second one is called the Brahmanas, okay, and that's the explanation of the verses, if you will, like a commentary. Uh, the third one is the Aranyakas, and that's the reflections of the meaning of the verses, okay? And then the fourth one is what's called the Upanishads, if that's the correct pronunciation. I don't know. My, my Sanskrit's getting a little old. I don't know Sanskrit, but anyway. So, but <laughs> anyway, that's the mystical interpretations. Aha! And that's where you open up a can of worms, right? Well, I think really what that means is that involves the humanity of the thing of the deal, of the majig of the thing of the deal with the, the after the thing on the deal, right? It makes sense, doesn't it? Now, if I put on a robe and I act really ethereal and say, you dum-dum, I know everything, then you have your priestly cast, with all due respect. And that's what it is. It gets so convoluted, and only these people can tell us, ooh. And do you know that? Again, you have people in the church that do the same thing. We are being told today by a sect of Christianity with hyper-charismatic, uh, we've got a whole chapter on this, but we'll get into this, especially with that. But we are told that you and I, we don't have the ability to read this. We need to go to these certain schools across America and learn to be a true prophet of God, and we need to learn these spiritual techniques to get into an altered state of con- well, you don't call it that, uh, have a, a spiritual encounter with God in order to tell the real deeper meaning behind the scripture. Rampant all over Unfortunate church today. It's all a trick to dupe people from get away uh, from the Bible. Okay, so that's your basic four parts. Now, this is also known, it's kind of into two subheadings. All that, what I just shared with you, you got the four Vedas, each one split into the four parts. It's what's called this word. Oh, wow. Have fun reading this. Uh, it's called the Shruti. I, I thought it was a cool word, but that's what it was. And it means that which is heard. Okay, that which is there. Now, that basically is their equivalent. That's the more of the core of their literature that they would consider, like we would say, the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's not even nothing like the Bible. But that's what they would call as their sacred scripture, right? It's called the Shruti, four Vedas, each Veda into four parts. Now, there's a second part, okay, it doesn't carry the same authority, although some would in their group. It's what's called the S-M-R-I-T-I, the Smurti. Not to be confused with the Smurfs. That's a whole different book, Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's got a blue cover on it and whatever, but uh, anyway. Hey, you know, if you were to choke a Smurf, what color would it turn? <laughs> That's a deep thought for today. Let's move on. <laughs> There's blue. Read blue. It's already blue. Don't you get it? Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's called the Smriti, okay? And these are more of kind of like the traditional things, but out of the Smriti, even though the, uh, uh, the uh, Shruti is what's considered more of the core uh, a stem of this, okay, it's the Smurti that actually is more popular, okay? 
uh, with that. And uh, of course, what that means, they're secondary writings, and it means the remembered. So the other ones are that which is heard, uh, and these are that which is remembered. Now, uh, the Smriti uh, writings include the Ramayana or the Rama's way, okay, and the Mahabharata, which means the great story or the epics, okay. And within the Mahabharata is the one you probably have heard, and that is the Baha, man, this one's always a whopper, Bhagavad Gita, right? You guys heard that one? Now, I'm going to dispel a myth because I know it's out there. This has nothing to do with that song by the psychedelic rock group called Iron Butterfly with the world's longest apparent drum solo, for those of you in that genre, okay? Uh, the name of that song is Inagata Davida. Now, I actually did some research on it because he said, oh, that's what they're talking about. It's the Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita. No. I did the research on this. And do you know where, why that name is called Inagata Davida? You can check this out. It's hilarious. Okay. And it kind of fits the culture of the time. Uh, actually, the actual title, the guy who wrote the song, okay, in the group Iron Butterfly, um, he wanted, it's, the correct title is In the Garden of Eden. But when he was telling the guy what he came up with, he was drunk, and it came out, uh, in the garden of Eden. I'm not making it up. And so the guy, yeah, I like it. So that's why they called it that song. So it has nothing to do with Hinduism. That's your little trivia for tonight, uh, as well as the Smurf thing. Okay. And, uh, but anyway, but this, even though it holds a secondary class, as opposed to the uh, Shruti, uh, this actually is the most popular uh, okay, and in this uh, uh, Bhagavad uh, Gita thing, okay, uh, the main character that's popularized is this uh, Krishna, okay, which we're going to get into another offshoot with Hari Krishna. Okay, Hari, okay, uh, means like the pleasure potency, uh, the pleasure potency of Krishna. And the whole goal is to, again, uh, to, the whole goal is to, to work yourself up into the altered state of consciousness, okay, uh, and to merge with the Krishna uh, consciousness and just endless pleasure, etc. Blah blah blah. So that's why they do that. But again, we'll get into that uh, later. Now, uh, again, they're not as authoritative, but they're the most popular, and they've exerted a much stronger influence in the uh, culture of India. Okay, so that's kind of their two sacred writings. There's there's actually a few other ones uh, of the Smriti uh, uh, called the Vindangas. That's the codes of law, such as the laws of this guy. Again, we'll get into it later. The guy named Manu. Okay, and Manu is the guy in the Hindu culture, period, that they believe was the original guy. Like we would say all of humanity uh, came from Adam and Eve, but again, God had a restart with the flood, and so basically humanity came from Noah and his family, right? Eight people, right? And they believe it was came from this guy. They called him Manu, okay? Uh, but we'll get into that later. They also have what's called the Puranas, uh, P-U, not the fish, <laughs> okay? Uh, it's a P-U-R-A-N-A-S, okay? And that's the genealogy and the legends of the gods, right? And Again, we might even have a whole study just on that. It's, why would you want to chum up with these things? I mean, <laughs> whoo, wow. Uh, the darshanas, and that's the philosophical writings, and the sutras, uh, and that's the uh, rules of ritual and social conduct, and the tantras, okay, which is, again, writings containing occultic power. Again, you go down this route, I, this, this a lie from the pit of hell. Oh, it's just exercise. Oh, it, I'm telling you, folks. This stuff is absolutely from the pit of hell. It's demonic. It's just a different form of a lie. All lies come from who? Who's the father of all lies? I didn't say it. Jesus did. Satan, right? And ultimately, it's to dupe you long enough to join him into the lake of fire. That's the whole goal. And so he comes up. He knows that Christianity and Jesus and the cross of Christ is the only way out of this mess. You can't do it through some other ways. So is it any surprise that once again, he spears off in this religion and this religion and that religion at just to throw out as many different things to confuse the one way. And that's what he's doing. Even to the point they're still being created today, like we said with the Jedi church. Here goes another one, another offshoot. You follow that, you go straight to hell. I didn't say that Jesus did. Okay, and so that's what we have. So the Vedas, okay. Uh, again, uh, some would even see them as authoritative, some don't. Again, it's kind of a, almost a relativistic kind of you take it however you want, whatever. And that's why you get so many different versions. And it's just a, which that kind of mindset has woven itself into New Age, as we're going to see. Because New Age is, hey, whatever you want, you, you're, you will be like God. You get to decide what's good and evil. You get to decide which path is right. All paths are right. You pick your own and doesn't that feel great? Okay, and that's kind of the same mindset. Uh, it's not clear how old the Vedas actually are because they were transmitted via oral tradition perhaps for many centuries before they were actually written down. And once they were written down, you got a secondary problem. It was upon birch bark or palm leaves. 
Materials, obviously, which don't stand the test of time, right? Because that's what we all want to do. We want to make sure that uh, we secure the copy of the Bill of Rights on bark. Or, well, that's what they wrote it on. So, so you can't even go back to test it, whatever. Uh, so most likely, even the most earliest of manuscripts have been lost. Uh, and the texts even today vary from school to school, right? So it's not like it's, they've got this solid thing and it's just, no, it's not that way. Uh, the Vedas, unlike the Bible, do not proclaim truth or salvation in the sense that we realize it. Okay, uh, they're mainly thoughts, ideas, speculation, well, maybe kind of, maybe some, right? Whereas you and I can bank on it, uh, what God says, that's the way it is. That's the way it happened. That's the way it's going to be, past, present, and future, okay? Uh, a lot of it's just full of prescriptions for sacrifice and ritual, things of that nature. Uh, it does not reveal, ultimately, the knowledge of God. Only the Bible can do that. Now, you'll have the skeptic. We dealt with this before, but just real quickly to give you, since we're into this issue again, they'll say, well, we can't trust the Bible either, you know, and talk about oral tradition. How do we know that what you mentioned, Moses, 1445, he, Genesis, he was writing about the Garden of Eden. How do we know that was true? Well, that's the importance of the genealogies. First of all, it didn't write it on bark, okay? Number one, <laughs> with all due respect, or palm leaves, <laughs> as cool as they are, Okay, but you see, when you add up the genealogies in Genesis 10, the, the first 2,157 years, because mankind had longer lifespans, and we know that's not just some spiritualization of the text. We even know scientifically that is possible, etc. cetera, blah, blah, blah. We deal with that all in great detail in our In the Days of Noah study. All right, but the first 2,157 years of mankind's existence overlaps the lives of three men, right? Okay, so you're just repeating over three guys. Oh, and by the way, you knew those three guys for a long time. It wasn't just a weekend. Hope I get it right, right? So, so that's, that's completely different. So it's not like some guys just hoping maybe somehow they could recall this not at all. Number two, as we saw before, the Jewish copy methods. Again, it was not on uh, a piece of bark or whatever. The Jewish person, they wrote it on the skins of clean animals. Uh, sometimes they were written on like a copper scroll and things of that nature. And oh, by the way, in God's sovereignty, a lot of this was stored in the desert. That's very nice and dry. And it preserves things, so it's almost like God knew what it was doing. Uh, every skin, <clears throat> every codex, it, when they would write it, had to contain a certain number of lines, columns, equal throughout the entire codex. It literally was a mathematical formula, Right? So it wasn't like, oh, I hope I get this right. It's literally, that's when they were making the copies. Uh, they had a definite recipe for the, uh, uh, the, the ink had to be a certain type. Uh, it couldn't write anything for memory, not even a little hash mark, uh, a yod. And even uh, they had to sit in full dress. They had to wash their whole body uh, over again just after writing the name of God, start all over. Uh, if a king, uh, a royalty would address them while writing, you could not acknowledge them, which I believe in the culture back in the day was punishable by death. So it was very serious stuff, okay? Uh, nothing willy-nilly about it. I hope, hope somebody can remember uh, that's not what we look at. Plus, you look at that, they don't even agree. Uh, we don't, they don't even have manuscripts. We've got over 24,000 plus, about 25,000 uh, copies of the New Testament manuscript, just the New Testament, right? And, and some of the writings they've got back was, is within the lifetime of the writer, some of it, even the latest findings, it used to be just 25 years, which is amazing. But some of the writings also that we have of the scripture are within like the same year now with some of the uh, pottery. You don't hear this on the news and they won't put this for some strange reason on the History Channel. But over there in the Qumran Caves, they're not just finding the Old Testament, they're finding portions of the New Testament. And based on the dates, you're looking at within the same year it's actually written. Excuse me? That is absolutely phenomenal. Okay, so what's going on? Absolutely uh, reliable. Okay, you don't get that. Oh, and by the way, contrast that to the writings of Aristotle and Plato. You got 25,000 copies. You got it's, the copies within the exact same year of the original. Okay, but, and then you question the authority of that and the authenticity of that. But then you have the writings of Aristotle and Plato who uh, was written, the earliest copy we have is 1,400 years removed from the original, not one year. Okay, and you only got seven on the whole planet copies, 1,400 years old from the original. Nobody mocks that, nobody scoffs at that, nobody questions that. But you're going to question the scripture? Totally reliable. Also, the statistics that you have that are unique to the Bible, written over a period of 1,500 years or so, written over 40 different generations, 40 different authors from every walk of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statements, scholars. And, and this dispels the lie because people say, oh, it was a book whipped up by man. I used to say that all the time as a non-Christian, make that accusation. It was a book whipped up by man. Man on his best day can never do something like this. These people, didn't, a lot of them didn't even know each other. So how are they going to conspire? Okay, you make sure you write this, and I'll write that, and make sure that over the years it's going to connect with this, and it doesn't disagree with that, because we have to have continuity. 
Okay, it wasn't that way. Uh, Moses, uh, uh, he was a political leader. Peter, a fisherman. Amos, a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Uh, Nehemiah, a cupbearer. Daniel, a prime minister. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Max, Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. Written in different places, in the wilderness, in a dungeon, on a hillside, in a palace, in prison, uh, while traveling Isle of Patmos with John uh, during a military campaign. Different times, times of war, times of peace. Different moods, from the heights of joy to the depths of despair and sorrow. Written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Three different languages, Hebrew and Greek, a little part there in Aramaic, and it never once contradicts itself, and it's got the same message through and through Old New Testament. No way on his best day mankind could ever whip something like that, right? The Bible is authoritative. That's not what you have with Hinduism. Now, you don't have the original copies. Even if you could find them, it's all rotted by now, bark and whatever, and they don't even agree. Okay, so I just had to throw that in there because, again, the accusation is, oh, no, this is older, it's more reliable. No, it's not. That's a lie. Okay, now let's continue on. As a result of the ritualistic emphasis, because man's got to do something. You can't just stand there and feel spiritual, right? Got to do something. Uh, the, and, and this is how they appease the rituals, the Hindu gods, okay, which again are demons. Uh, the priests became very powerful, right? And uh, because obviously they could hold this over their head, right? Does that go on today? Unfortunately, in other religions. You don't do what we say to... Right? And around 600 BC, the people revolted from the control of the priests and the form of Hinduism that emerged focused on internal meditation, which is the form of altered state of consciousness to commune with the deities and et cetera, blah, 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 to escape reincarnation. Okay, it's not just for stress. That's a lie. That's to get you sucked into it. Okay, and as opposed to just uh, this whole priestly thing. So basically, they broke off eventually and it became more individualized. Although there are certain parts that you're going to see that people have to have their guru. People sometimes want to have somebody tell them what to do in religion, unfortunately, uh, with man. Now, what do we have as Christians? There's only one mediator between man and God, the book of Hebrews. Who's that? Jesus Christ. We go straight, and that's what he says. Hey, can you believe this? We don't have to go through all these rituals. All the work's been done for us. Amen? And we have freedom to go to God directly, all right, through, with boldness. Uh, it, 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 to find grace and, and help in our time of need, he says. Isn't that mind-blowing? And, and as John, when John writes, it's, it's, it's like, I always, when I read that, I was like, it, you could still uh, feel the words coming off the pages. He, he's still blown away by this. And he says, and to think, we are the children of God. Can you believe that? After all we've done, we hated him, Romans 5. We were sinners, ungodlies. Uh, he, didn't have to, he didn't need us. And yet he died for us, and we become his children. And it's all free. There's no technique. You don't need a priest. It's all done. Isn't that? We all know religions all teach the same thing. It's a lie. Christianity is completely, absolutely unique. Right? It's the only way. And Satan has invented a myriad, and he's still doing it today, of false paths just to confuse people because he is evil and he wants people to join him in the lake of fire. He knows he's lost. He's the loser. Okay, Jesus beat him on the cross. Right? But he's trying to take people to hell. Now, let's deal with a little bit of... Uh, uh, issue on the uh, uh, chronology of their history. Again, 1500 BC, that's when we had the development of the, uh, uh, the Vedas and uh, the polytheism that started coming out of that. 1250, you got the Rig Veda, one of the four uh, composed. Uh, they're kind of hymns, kind of like a, a psalm book, if you will. Ten books comprising of hymns and mantras to do uh, 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 and about the various deities. Right, if you want to connect with them, etc. 800 to 500 BC, you had the beginning of the creation of the Upanishads. That's the mystical interpretations. Okay, uh, at 600, you know, before the revolt and stuff, you started this this caste system started to get developed and things of that nature. Uh, 200 BC to 280 over that span, that's you had the creation uh, of the Bhagavad Gita. Okay, <clears throat> not that song. Okay, uh, with that, uh, 200 AD, you have these things called the Laws of Manu compiled. Again, we'll get to that uh, later. Uh, 300 AD, you got the early Puranas uh, composed. Again, that's the genealogies of the legends of the gods and all their uh, things of that nature. 400 AD, you have the Shiva. How many of you guys have heard of Shiva? Right? Shiva cult begins to emerge of that. Okay, Shiva is not a female deity. Have you ever looked at a picture? It got makeup and stuff. It kind of looks like a lady, but it's a guy. So it's supposed to be a guy. It's a demon. Okay. And I think that the, his wife, goddess of Pavardi or something like that, we'll get into that later. Okay. But it's actually a male figure, demon, whatever. Okay. Uh, Shiva. Uh, but Shiva <clears throat> is still today one of the most popular cults, aspects of Hinduism. 
Very creepy, very dark. Now, Shiva, okay, uh, is the destroyer, known as the destroyer, okay? There's another one called uh, Kali. Uh, the goddess Kali, with, you see with the tongue hanging out, and the, uh, very just like, why would, and the point is that these people, with, like with Shiva and the other, their goal is they want to emulate, they want to become like this god or goddess. And if you look at the pictures of Shiva, I mean, it's totally uh, demonic, right? One thing that's big within the Hindu, the gods and goddesses, you're always going to see this figure of, of all entities, a serpent. Hmm. wonder who that is. And we're going to get into that in greater detail. As serpent force, the kundalini, and things that nature with the chakras, and what happens when you get into the altered state of consciousness, and how that's creeping into the church, believe it or not. Yeah, you're connecting with something, all right, but it's not God, it's Satan. Okay, but the serpent. And with Shiva, if you look at the pictures, the destroyer, uh, dark and terrible, horrible looking, encircled with serpents uh, on, a, on a crown of skulls and just the destroyers. Like, why would I want to do my rituals and things and whatever and become like that? Hinduism is a very unfortunate, very dark religion. Again, all religions outside of Christianity are false. They're all going to lead straight to hell. Okay, but you get into a lot of this stuff and it's sad. Right? The, why, why, is, why can't you be driving around? The, a, a, a Hindu today <clears throat> can be driving down the road, and he's doing just fine in his vehicle, and there literally are corpses in the ditch and other people dying and crawling, and they won't even help him because that's what Hinduism teaches. Those people have to be like that because they're working off their karma. They did something bad in a past life. And if I were to stop my vehicle, and if I were to help them, then I'm going to mess up their karma. They're going to have to do it all over again. So I'm just going to keep on driving. The, the, horrible. People, the suffering stuff, and they just, because they, that's their belief system. This is satanic, right? All lies come from Satan, right? But the, I can't touch him. I can't do, I can't. And then this is why Christian missionaries go over there. And what do we do? What's Jesus tell them? Love, love your enemies. You take care of them. You give them a cup of cold water. You help them. You feed them. You clothe them, right? Matthew 25. That's how you know you're a real Christian. That's Jesus. And it blows people away. And then, then sometimes that's where the persecution comes. Don't you do that because you're messing up their karma. It's like, well, I'm just, the guy's starving to death. People will literally throw their children into the, the Ganges River because they believe it's a goddess there, right? For favor and for, for cleansing of sin, right? They will literally throw their children alive into the river to try to get, escape the... What? What is that? Right? This is not a peaceful thing. And You see, it's been, it's been romanticized over here in Hollywood. And it's being sold as a bill of good in schools today. And in businesses, as techniques, it's also good and healthy for you. No, it's not. There's a demon behind it. It's demonic. And it's dark. And the more you mess with it, the darker it's going to get. Okay, and that's how they, they snook you into it. But anyway, so that's what we got, the Shiva cult. Uh, 558, the Bhakti movement. Now, Bhakti is intense devotion. It's kind of what it is with your rituals. Not just doing rituals. You got to really get into it, right? You're going to be really spiritual. Do we have an element today in the church that if you're really spiritual, you got to really demonstrate it? Yeah, there's a sect of that in Christianity, isn't it? Right? Hey, I'm all about, I'm, a, I'm not anti-emotion, Right? <clears throat> I, I love the fact that I have a personal relationship with God. The next two Sundays, we're going to get into the next two studies. We're going to get into the intimacy of God. We just finished up the existence of God and about having a personal relationship with him. That still blows me away. The creator of the universe, how big he is and how huge and awesome. And yet I got a, I got a personal relationship. I can talk to him at any time. And there's times when emotion does come out. When, when I'm crying and weeping or just full of joy. And that, hey, that's great because we have a relationship. But not this hyped up stuff. And somehow, if you don't do it as hype as the other person's hype, somehow you're not as spiritual. Well, this is an element also. It's called bhakti in Hinduism. That's the man. We're really getting into this. We're really going to escape karma. We're really connecting with these gods and goddesses. And you start to see that Satan, I had an instructor always says, Satan doesn't have to be intelligent. Now, the word uh, demon the, in the Greek, demonion, means intelligent ones. They're very smart. But he says he doesn't have to be smart. He's even got, on top of the smarts, he's got the 6,000 years of watching us tick. He knows our shortfalls. He knows how to get us. He knows our weaknesses. He's owned that over 6,000 years. But when he starts to say, he doesn't have to be smart. He uses the same old tactics. He waits a generation, repackages it, and does it again, and we fall for it again. And that's what we're going to learn with these different religions. You're going, wait a second, that's being done today. Yeah, it's the same thing that worked way back here. 
that dupe these people is being done today. And not just in the world, we're going to see in the church. But if you don't know, you fall for it. Hey, slap Christianese on it. It's got to be Christian. No, it's not. Right? But let's continue on. So that's that aspect. Bhakti movement. Um, <clears throat> then you have 788 to 820. You got the life of a philosopher named Shankara. And that's the guy who gets credit with unifying, if you will, the thoughts of Hinduism, kind of bring them a little bit more together, congealed, was this guy Shankara. Uh, 1192, Muslims begin to enter into northern India. Now, out of that came the Sikh faith, the Sikh, uh, Sikhism, kind of a merging of the two. We'll get to that, uh, Lord willing, later. Uh, 1498, the Portuguese begin to enter into the, uh, India, right, with the spice trade and all that stuff. And that began to develop into the Hindu culture, and still there today, okay, of a disdain for the West, right? Because they came over there, unfortunately, it wasn't to share the gospel. And they basically did some rotten things, and it was a monetary issue, and they began to take over and things of that nature. Okay, now who followed the Portuguese right after that, uh, on up to 1947 when they got their independence, from 1750 to 1947, outside the Portuguese was the British. Okay, how many of you guys got every little aspect of this drawn down? Right? Now, and if one of you can come here in chronological order, repeat this, I will take you to the bacon bar. You're not going. But anyway, so <laughs> this little teaser. Anyway, so, but anyway, the British came, right? And so between the Portuguese and the British, guess what we still have to deal with today? They, they look at Christianity as a Western thing. Oh, we know those Westerners. Look what you did to our country for centuries. You came in here, you robbed us, you overtook us, you fought against us, you killed us, whatever. And so it's kind of hard a little bit it's to get your foot back in there because of that. Uh, and it still goes on, <clears throat> unfortunately, today. Then 1836 to 1886, you got this life of this guy named Ramama Krishna. And he's got a devotion to Kali, okay, and the tantric worship. And again, that's, I mean, it's all bad. Man, that's getting down to the dark, dark, dark stuff. 1850, that's when you got the first English translation of the Rig Veda. And so now you got to prepare to uh, uh, evangelize the West. And that's what began to happen shortly after that. Uh, 1863 to 1902, you got the life of this guy called the Vivekananda. Uh, he was the chief disciple of the Rama Krishna guy. And he began to. Uh, evangelize the West. And we'll get to that in a second, okay? So that's kind of the guy who, okay, let's take it out now. Let's go evangelize the world with Hinduism. 1869, 1948, uh, that's when you have this guy, you might be familiar with him, named uh, Gandhi. You heard of that guy? Okay. Now, uh, Mohandas or Mahatma Gandhi, uh, that's his name. He was a political activist, but a Hindu. And uh, he was the, basically the leader behind the British independent movement. And eventually they did get their independence, I believe, 1947. Okay, and so he was a part of that. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that they teach, I don't know if we're going to get that far tonight, uh, but in their verbiage they have a, a, a doctrine called the uh, Ahimsa, and the Ahimsa is the doctrine of nonviolence. Nonviolence, right? Can't hurt anything, right? And, uh, and this also is the formation of their heavy emphasis, a lot of them, on vegetarianism. Okay, and because we all know if you're a vegetarian, you're more spiritual than anybody else. No, we might get to that tonight, maybe, uh, with that aspect. But anyway, so that's kind of, so he had this nonviolence approach. Now, a little bit of hypocrisy going on, if you do the homework, uh, for somebody being nonviolent, uh, he actually uh, did help recruit people to fight for World War I. Ahimsa went right out the window. Okay, <laughs> sound like an idiot. But anyway, excuse me? Uh, what happened to your little peace thing, nonviolence thing? Okay, now comes World War II, and he did resist that, and he took a lot of flack for that, uh, apparently, uh, and, but listen to again, remember what's the whole, I can't help anybody, because they're working off their karma, right, and it'll mess them up ever having a chance to escape in reincarnation, and the endless cycle, samsara, they call it, okay, uh, listen to what he said in response to, oh yeah, you mean to tell me we're just supposed to sit here with the Jewish Holocaust? Direct quote, <clears throat> he said, Hitler killed millions of Jews, it is the greatest crime of our time but the jews should have listen offered themselves to the butcher's knife or thrown themselves in the sea from the cliffs that's from gandhi you know because that, that would have been you know the better way to go you'd be like a hero then but really so the way to counteract evil is to go kill yourself what kind of philosophy is that yeah, right? So again, he's been westernized, he's been romanticized, you even see people quote him 
on Facebook, why are you quoting a guy who believes in Hinduism? With all due respect. How about quote the Bible? Since when did the Bible? Did you run out of Bible quotes? <laughs> what are you doing? I haven't even seen Christians do it. What? Who cares what Gandhi said? With all due respect, why would you promote that? Haven't you done your homework? Okay, with that. Now, uh, then we get into, uh, after Gandhi, 19, or 1888 to 1975, this guy named uh, Sarvapali uh, Radhakrishnan, and he was the first vice president and the second president there. They got their independence and things of that nature. Then you go back to that Vivekananda guy. Remember the guy who said they evangelized the West? Okay, he did that uh, by means of this thing called the World Parliament of Religions, right? And that was, first one was held in 1893. We also had the 100-year anniversary of that in 1993. That's the year I got saved, okay? And so he was there, and that was held in Chicago, okay, the World Parliament of Religions, and he was the Hindu representative to introduce Hinduism to America uh, and to the West. But again, does the Bible talk about anything? Why is that significant? Why is this significant when we see on the planet all of a sudden, not just many different religions, but all religions say we need to come together as one? What's the Bible say? That's the last day society is starting to be built. So the first time they met officially, globally, was 1893. Repeated in 1993. And ever since the 1993 one, it's increased. They don't wait 100 years. They don't wait 50 years. Listen to this. Uh, 1999, 2004, 2007, 2009, 2014, 2015. They just had the 2015. Oh, by the way, the 1893 was uh, uh, in Chicago. The 1993 was back in Chicago. Okay, and the one they just had, and I wanted to go to it, but I think there was a scheduling conflict, uh, not to support it, but to be the fly on the wall. Okay, was 2015 last year, guys, and that took place in Salt Lake City, not too far from here. I was like, oh, I'll drive there. Okay, Salt Lake City, uh, and it took place at the Salt Palace Convention Center in Salt Lake City. 9,806 attendees were there from around the world, almost 10,000 people. Performers, volunteers from 73 countries, 30 major religions, 548 sub-traditions participated in the event. They're serious about this stuff, and it's escalating. And again, why is that significant? Because the one book that was not written on birch bark or palm leaves that you can't trust told us this is a sign you're living the last days. Because part of the Antichrist kingdom, you're going to see a global government, a global economy, and a global religion. And we just had a global event not too far from us, a couple hour drive, few hour drive, whatever, okay, from you and I, okay, it's still going on today, and it's increasing, but 1893 is when he began to introduce the Hinduism, now, initially, wasn't uh, too popular, because there was still quite a bit of a Judeo-Christian ethic here in the United States, okay, in the West, Canada, okay, but what we're going to see, and we're, uh, when we get there, Lord willing, we're going to break away for a couple weeks, and I'm going to share a couple videos from you, And we're going to trace this evangelism to the West. And you're going to see that even though this was a major event to let's now take this outside of India, okay, and move it to the rest of the world, including the West, okay, uh, didn't didn't get too far, okay, but the big foothold that they began to make inroads into America, and it's never stopped and it's done nothing but grow, okay, was in the 60s, and there was a certain group that helped popularize it, and it was the Beatles, and we're going to go into that in great detail, right? In fact, George Harrison composed a song that uh, wrote uh, a mantra uh, with the Hare Krishna. Very slick. And you think you're singing about Jesus and ain't Jesus. So we'll get into that. Very slick. But that's what Hinduism is all about. Very slick with that. So we'll, we'll get into that in the Lord one later. So that's, that's the biggest issue. Now, 1927, there's another influence speaking of the 60s. Uh, I don't know if you want to go look online. Once you see a picture of him, I think a lot of you will understand. Oh, I, I know that guy. I've seen that guy before. Uh, but it's a guy named uh, Sata Sai Baba. Sai Baba. Okay, you might have heard of him. And, uh, but basically, he's got this, uh, uh, typically he dresses uh, as a guru, suppose a guru, uh, with this orange uh, robe thing all the way down. And he's got some really big hair. Poof, poofing out, okay? This is the Sai Baba character, okay? And uh, he helped to popularize that. Other gurus, which are still here all over the United States, by the way, uh, and uh, with their uh, sinners. Okay, but let, let's take a look at it. How did this uh, Sai Baba uh, decide that he was uh, who he is, okay? And why did he get so popular? Well, listen to his life story very quickly. Uh, on March 4th, 1940, while living with his elder brother, uh, Seshem Raju in Urvakanda in a small town near Pudaparthi. You ever been there? Yeah, I can't even pronounce it. 
I don't think it's on GPS either, Bobby. But anyway, so uh, Satha was apparently stung by a scorpion. Apparently don't ever get stung by a scorpion. Because he lost consciousness for several hours and in the next few days underwent a noticeable change in behavior. There were symptoms of laughing and weeping and oh, we all know that if you laugh uncontrollably and, or weep uncontrollably, it's got to be the Spirit of God. Is there a movement going on in the church today? Laughing and weeping. and hey, Forget the Bible. It's all about a show. Look at those guys on the stage there. It's got to be God. It's the, it's the f- here's the words, fresh wind. It's always fresh. Fresh wind of the Spirit. It's the Holy, they're doing a new work and a new, j- no, it's not. It's an old work of Satan. But it's been Christianized. So he goes into this demonic fit, laughing, weeping, Okay, and it's claimed that he began to sing Sanskrit verses, a language which he had no prior knowledge. So if somebody speaks in there, it's got to be from God. I'm telling you, once we get into this, you're going to see so many practices today that are being promoted in the church that listen. You could say it's the Spirit of God, maybe, maybe not. All I know is the occult and Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, and a lot of these guys have been doing it long before, but it's a demon. You really want to go there. You really want to flirt with that. Okay. Oh, by the way, since when did this not become good enough? Since when did I need to get something more than this? Since when did this not become sufficient? Since when did I have to go outside of this with some experience with somebody who knew better than this? It's the same old tactic. So this guy, he starts doing that, right? And uh, the doctors concluded his behavior was hysteria. Concerned, his parents brought Satha back home to uh, Puttaparthi. Uh, and took him to many priests, doctors, and an exorcist. Uh, and one of the exorcists uh, went to the extent of torturing him with the aim of curing him. So uh, Satha reportedly seemingly kept calm throughout the whole torture, and that alarmed his parents. Hey, he's not reacting to torture. You know, it's like, you can scream now. That looks like it hurts, right? So something weird was going on, right? And then Satha uh, called household members and reportedly materialized boom, uh, prasad, or what's a food offering, right? And flowers for his family members. His father became furious at seeing this, thinking his son was bewitched. So, so even his dad, even with a Hindu mindset, what do you think it was? Good, bad? Bad, demonic, something bad, right? Bad spirit, something. He took a stick and threatened to beat him if Satha didn't reveal who he really was. So this is some, what kind of spirit's in here, Right? And then later, he responded to his family, quote, I am Sai Baba, a reference to Sai Baba of Shridi. Uh, this was the first time he proclaimed himself to be the reincarnation of Sai Baba of Shridi, a saint who had become famous in the late 19th to early 20th centuries uh, and had died eight years before Satha was born. So now he says he's a reincarnation. That's why he's going through all this weird experience. Now, uh, this is where he began to get popularized uh, in the 60s and 70s and throughout because of these fake manifestations. Because we all know that if something manifests, supposedly it's got to be from God. Well, listen to what he's supposedly able to do. His materializations, the biggest thing that he was famous for is what's called the vibhuti or the holy ash. He would just be there doing his thing, whatever, and mm-hmm. Dude, wash your hands or something. What are you? Right, but that was the holy ash. But he was supposedly uh, uh, manifested uh, rings, necklaces, and watches. Hey, look over there. Mm-hmm. Don't laugh. <laughs> Come on, right? But see, people don't know, right? And people always like a good show. Feels religious, mysterious. So anyway, so he supposedly did all that stuff. Let's just give me a break. Uh, and alleged other things. Now, his devotees considered these signs of his divinity. And skeptics viewed them as simple conjuring tr- tricks. Okay, his further, uh, he's further faced accusation over the years of sexual abuse and fraud as well. So, but anyway, so a lot of that, a lot of the, the show. Did you know that there's actually people today in churches today that would consider themselves Christian today that do the same thing? Now, it's not holy ash. It's not Hindu holy ash because that's, that's too obvious. But one of the big things, and it's still going on today. This was big when I first got saved in 93. It's still, I just heard, it's still going on today. You've got to be kidding me. And these guys supposedly, under the power of the Holy Spirit, they manifest, not holy ash, but gold dust. 
Have you, I mean, have you seen that? Go, go search it out tonight. People actually say that they've they're got the power of the Holy Spirit and they can manifest gold dust. Yeah. It's, you've got to be kidding me. This is what this demonic, with all due respect, Sai Baba does to do people. But again, you Christianize it. Somehow it's okay. Right? Because we all know that Jesus came and if we're all going to grow up to be spiritual Christians, we have to get to that spiritual point after you buy this person's book and do their spiritual techniques and go to their spiritual workshops and cost a lot of money to manifest gold dust. That's why he came. <laughs> People, I'm telling you, once you learn the techniques of what's going on with these different religions and now take a fresh look at the church, you're going to say, oh no, we are messed up. No wonder there's so little power in the church today. No wonder the church is so messed up. No wonder... There's hardly anybody getting saved. What a mess of things, all right? Let's, let's just finish up. Uh, 1947, of course, they got their political independence. Uh, they developed their constitution in 1950. 1957, the Hindu temple opens in San Francisco, California. Big major headquarters uh, still today. 1966, she had the birth of the Hare Krishna or the ISKCON movement uh, founded, okay? And 1994 is reported by Harvard University at that time, 94, so it's over 20 years ago. Uh, 800 Hindu temples, already 800 temples, Hindu temples in the United States, okay? Now, man, we didn't even get... Hey, how many guys think that we're even going to get into our workbook next week? I don't think it's going to happen. I just don't think so. <laughs> but next week, believe it or not, we're, I'm gonna, we got to go now. Uh, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where I left off, and where I left off is then we're going to get into a nice, decent discussion on vegetarianism that's a big one because that's part of the techniques that you need to cleanse your body to commune with the god it's hinduism now if you want to eat vegetables eat vegetables my son loves vegetables right and when it comes to vegetables i'll eat green beans i'll eat salad corn right i'll do that all day i have a very simple rule when it comes to vegetables in my house if it cooks when you cook it and it stinks don't eat it Cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, spinach, you name it, right? So that's my rule. But hey, if you want to eat the stinky stuff, go eat stinky stuff. So if you want to do that. But what we're going to see is even in the vegetarian movement, which is creeping into the church, just like the environmental movement, you push it far enough, there's a spiritual element attached to it. And we're going to see that next week, and people are being duped, as well as yoga and other things of that nature. But again, you don't know that until you get equipped with these other ones. And Satan has just taken old Hinduism repackaged it and people are eating it up and getting and you wonder why their lives are so dark okay well hi this is pastor billy crone of sunrise baptist church and get a life ministries and i hope you enjoyed today's study but in closing before you go let me ask you one final question if you were to die today are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell you see here's the problem the bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven and that's because god is holy and we are not the Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. 
Hey folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay, and folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you, that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind, he knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to 
Trust in his work on the cross to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.